No disrespect to Amir, you know, it felt so easy for me in there, you know, it was just a matter of time. I caught him in the first round, you know, it, you know, and and like I said, they've been prodding and pushing at me all, you know, all the way through the all the way through this, you know, um, and I, you know, I even had to change my gloves in, in the middle of the ring. You know, I did everything they wanted me to do, and, and I still and I still took care of business. So I'm just happy that the chapter's closed now on Amir Khan. You know, and I've had a fantastic career. You know, I've, I've been over to to America, won Sean Porter, the IBF World Title. And welcome back to the number one podcast in the sport that so often promises and so rarely delivers until Saturday night. Saturday night, boxing fans in the United Kingdom got what they were asking for. And the most important thing about it is it didn't disappoint. But what I'd like to do is I just want to cover off some high level things, just so, so we're all on the same page here. What I can't do is I can't entertain the discussion around moaning over the undercard, right? Because there was a time in our lives when we didn't care what it took to get that fight over the line. No one cared. If you had said five years ago, you're going to get Khan Brook, people would have said, just get it done. Don't even give me an undercard. I don't care about the undercard. I care about the main event. And a lot of people who had that energy back then just wanted to moan last night. And it's disappointing that people want to complain about the quality of the undercard. I think, I think it's unprofessional. I think it's ignorant. Like, you know, and I have to say, Edward Muscat's a man whose opinions I respect greatly, by the way. I think, you know, he's one of the elders in the sport to me. So I'll always be respectful about him and I'll always be respectful to him. But I did have to pull him up when he complained about the undercard because, you know, when you look at what Frank's done for domestic grudge matches, the Lyndon Arthur versus Anthony Yard was no great shakes, either of them. Daniel Dubois versus Joe Joyce, who was on that undercard? No idea. Uh, Jack Massey was on there, I think. I think Jack Cattrall was on there. Louis Lynn was on there. But who were they fighting? We don't know. So you have to understand sometimes that the undercard has more significance the further down the line you go. You know, There were numerous Mayweather undercards that on the Friday before the fight you complain about. And then you look back and go, okay, these guys needed the airtime. They needed the space. They needed the room to grow. So... I'm not going to complain too much simply because in high level terms, what this card delivered was a cracking main event in the chief support. We had a reason to get emotional. And if, if you didn't come close to shedding a tear, I don't know what kind of boxing fan you are. We got to showcase an Olympian, which had to happen somewhere. Somehow we've got a really good trade fight in Jermaine Brown versus Chris Schofield. So for the hardcores and the boxing nerds like me, that's a good fight. And then you got to see the prospects. And that's what these that's what these pay-per-views are normally about. It's about what are your crown jewels? And can you get your crown jewels out there on one night when you've got the biggest audience watching? It's not really about entertaining the fans because the fans paid their money for the main event. Anything else is more or less a false economy. So if your energy is predominantly towards complaining about what happened on Saturday night, then... You know, I, I don't have any time. I don't have the energy for that. I just move past and say, look, I thank the boxing gods. We we got what we wanted. This is the third time I have I've praised something unreservedly. I think the first one was Brooke Golovkin, where my exact words were, 
this is the high point of British boxing. I think this is the perfection of the Hearn formula, and I stand by that. I, I believe that was Eddie Hearn's best ever work for two reasons. One, quality of the fundamentals, opponent and so forth. But secondly, it was all accessible to the fans. As a fan, if you wanted to see Golovkin, Abel, Sanchez, Kelbrook, you could have seen them in that fight week. You could have been close to them and had pictures taken. I put Joshua versus Klitschko in the same category, but that felt a bit more manufactured. Things You start having to pay for things. Access wasn't as easy. And I think that was probably as far as you could stretch that formula. And what I love is the Brook Khan thing has almost brought it back to its essence. So we're kind of in that Brook Golovkin space again. So for me, in this kind of era of watching boxing, they're my three high points. And we're not talking about quality of main event, by the way. We're talking about everything around that, the build-up, the, the way it was set up, the content. They're the three best ones I've seen, definitely in the last decade. And I, I include Frotch Groves amongst that. But Frotch Groves would sit above all of those because it was the genesis of this kind of phase and era of boxing that we see now. But you guys have really come to talk about Saturday night. You know, if you want the, the talk of the build-up, if you want the talk of the weigh-in, listen to the previous episode. I think it's number 82. This is really about what happened on Saturday and beyond. I, I'm still... I'm like... I'm so... I'm still buzzing over the fact that the fight happened and I've been so excited about this for a long time. And I'm just like, wow, it, this, this really happened. <laughs> Credit to Ben Shalom. So I watched the whole card. I watched the whole card because I said, look, if I want to talk about it, I need to know what I need to talk about and I need to know I can talk about it in detail. So I'm going to keep a focus to the things that people were engaged with, right? <sighs> Shall I go main event first? No, let me go undercard first. God, I just want to blast through that. We got Jermaine Brown versus Chris Schofield for an English title, which to a lot of people say, like, I don't know who these two are, why am I watching? But for me, obviously, I've got a lot of emotion invested in Jermaine Brown, Adam Martin, Mick Foyle, because, well, so Adam and, Adam and Mick were like the elder heads when I was at the lodge. You know, I think Adam probably had grey hair back then. And Jermaine is like the generation after me. So there's a real emotional link to those guys. And I want them to do well for those reasons, you know, at a time when the lodge is struggling to be visible and relevant, seeing Jermaine out there, seeing Adam out there, seeing Mick out there is a reminder that at his best Fitzroy Lodge was literally a factory for quality boxers. And I think you saw that in the Jermaine Brown fight. He, he did what I would have done. And as soon as he realized that Chris Schofield was just there to counterpunch, he set the pace. And I saw something in Jermaine that I hadn't seen in previous fights. And that was a, a lot more head movement, which I'm sure I messaged Adam this saying that that was probably the missing piece, particularly if Jermaine is now going to be that kind of mid-range into short-range sort of guy. And you had to be against Schofield, who looked about 10 foot tall. In terms of like Team Schofield, I, I don't know what they were planning on doing. He had that, he had that nineteen fifties lead hand like eighteen feet in the air, which you never understand why it's up there for. It it's like the Repton style. That's what it, that's that's what it reminded me of. When Chris Schofield came out, he came out like a Repton. He looked. Uh, I don't know if anyone's ever watched James Branch Senior posture up when he's boxing. 
That's what it looked a bit like, except Schofield wasn't as loose and languid. Whereas Jermaine came for business and it's a massive style shift for Jermaine because as an amateur, Jermaine was, you know, one-twos and he was pretty good with that. Him and Ricardo slew one-two machines. And here what you're seeing is that they had the layers and wrinkles and this is what, I guess, having a coach for as long as he has done, has done for him. He's, he's coming in behind the double jab. He knows that once he's in, he's just got to let his hands go. And there was a lot of that. The first four rounds, I thought Jermaine controlled comfortably. And I thought he set that pace that Schofield didn't want. And Schofield didn't know what to do. And I tweeted this. Schofield's corner were giving him the wrong advice. And how do I define giving the wrong advice? It's this. They were telling Chris Schofield how to hurt and maybe stop Jermaine. And that wasn't what was needed in that fight. He needed to compete in that fight. Chris Schofield needed to go, not toe-to-toe, but he had to go tactic for tactic with Jermaine. He had to make Jermaine think in there, make Jermaine feel uncomfortable and have Jermaine off balance. And nothing that Schofield's corner were giving him was helpful in that sense. I'm not saying they're bad corner, I'm just saying the tactics were wrong on the night because Jermaine wasn't going to stop coming. Despite the, the smiley demeanor, despite him being from Kingston, despite the nice way he puts words together in, in interviews, when he gets in that ring, he's quite nasty. And if you can't match that, it's a horrible night. Jamal Ledoux found that out. And now Chris Schofield has found that out. And at 168, you've got to be on your game to go up against Jermaine Brown. So I thought that was a really, really compelling fight for the first five or six rounds. And afterwards, you could see Jermaine was just kind of managing the fight and just making sure that he won the, you know, won the contest overall, which was good. Um, still stuff to work on. I still think on the inside, he's got to crispen up his work. The punch arcs are too wide and it's not letting him get his shots there quickly enough. But he's in the right camp to, to fix those things. I think also he needs to understand and maybe give Adam a nudge about this. He needs to understand the psychology of a fight and say, look, what you're doing is working. You've got him under pressure. Do not let this guy get any confidence now. As long as you've got him sliding towards the ropes, you're winning this fight. Do not let him come forward. And sometimes you just have to control that part of it as well. But there's still progress happening live as we see it in the fight. So I'm happy with that. I wish Chris Schofield all the best in his career. You know, just for that one night, I had to be a Jermaine Brown fan. And I just want to say this. You've got to start giving Adam, Adam Martin his respect now. Because Adam's quietly done this behind the scenes. And he's, in the beginning, he was struggling to make it work. And I know there were times when he was like, I don't know if I can make this work as a full-time commitment. And there were times, there were dark times, and I think we all go through them as, as adults. And he saw that through, and you know he's got to give his due to his sponsors and the people who've backed him. Because now you look at Adam Martin, and I go, what's the difference between Adam Martin and Adam Booth as trainers? Maybe a surname? I don't believe you'd, ha you'd not come out an inferior fighter spending time with Adam Martin. So if you're a boxer and you're out there and you're being trained by some guy who was working in fitness first two years ago. And all of a sudden you're now, you know, being trained by him. And if you're there going, who could I work with? Who can get performances out of me and develop me? Look at Adam. He trains out of Adam Booth's gym. So he's got the facilities because he's in that gym. There's access to, you know, a higher quality of sparring and so forth. I think people need to start putting Adam Martin on their list of 10 trainers to to work with in this country, definitely from the south of England. 
and start giving the man his respect. And also, shouts out to Mick Gilfoyle because I swear he's not supposed to, I mean, I, I swear he's not supposed to be out there cornering people, man. Like, he's led a stressful life. Do you know what I mean? He's led a very stressful life. So he should really be at home with his feet up, but he loves the game too much that he's involved and he's still valuable and he knows a lot about the sport. You know, lifelong boxer and kudos to him too. That's a, that's a pretty formidable team. You know, all they need there is Roy Connor in the back and I mean, you've got the three amigos, but happy for them. You know, that's my, my bias for the, for the podcast. So thank, thank you guys for bearing with me through that one. But one thing I did want to add before I shut, shut the issue off is I hope we're going to start hearing the talk about Jermaine Brown versus Zach Chelly now, because if, if we're going to get this buzz off grudge matches as we did with Khan versus Brooke, I think, like we've said, those organic rivalries, that kind of intra-lodge rivalry between Zach Chelly and Jermaine Brown, let those two find out who's really who. Because I know if I go back to 2016, there was a lot of feeling around that time, sort of April 2016, about who should have represented Fitzroy Lodge in the ABAs. And I'm sure if Jermaine Brown's being honest, had he been given a clear run, he believes he could have won those ABAs in 2016. Instead, he had to... I mean, imagine you've got three guys from the same club that have trained together, and you have to navigate that before you can even get out the the Southeast Divs. Never mind, get out of London. So I think I'd like to see that as a as a step forward fight. So I don't know whether you do that for like a Commonwealth or you do that for the British further down the line, but they're the conversations that need to start happening. So Saturday, we also got to see Brad Rear continue his his fast rise now. And it's nice to see him getting attention. I, I more know Brad Rear for, for what he did as a youth. So I know he was definitely in the mix with guys like Ben Reese. And I imagine Ben Reese will be turning pro at some point as well, who isn't a bad fighter, but I think he's in the armed forces. So he's got a good life. And so he's from that kind of school. And uh, you know me, I think if you come up through the youth ranks and you do well there, final or win, you normally go far in boxing. And I, I, I'm still trying to figure out why it is that youth and schoolboy boxing is a better indicator of success than winning the ABAs. I don't understand it, but it seems to be the case. So Brad, first round, First round stoppage, peach of a punch, uh, went from right uppercut to left uppercut. Not many British guys do that. Now, I'd like to see him carry that sort of thinking through all the way up the levels because those sorts of combinations are difference makers in fights because you don't normally train to defend that sort of sequence. So there's not much to say because it's a first round stoppage. I was happy for him. Uh, Vidal Riley, that was interesting. I was happy to see, actually, I was happy to see, I think Russ Gerrard was in the corner. So it's lovely to see Russ get his, his, his shine in front of the screen. So kudos to him. But in terms of Vidal Riley, we're, we're in an interesting space because I put Vidal Riley in the Hosea Burton category. I don't know if he can make 175 safely, but I don't believe he's big enough to be a cruiserweight. So I don't know what you do with Vidal Riley because he was up against uh, Shehepo, right? The Namibian guy who was there to be stopped, by the way. He wasn't, he wasn't meant to go the six. Now, that was meant to be a Vidal Riley showcase. The fact that he went the six is a concern. But if I was to offer you an explanation as to why, and this seems to be the disease of a lot of British boxers, they blow their load in the first four rounds. That means they do whatever that bag of tricks is they've brought into the ring that night. They do all of it. 
I repeat, they do all of it inside the first four rounds. And if that hasn't worked, there isn't anything else. There's nothing else after that. And I thought with Vidal Riley, he probably could have stepped on the accelerator from round two onwards, which he didn't do until it was too late. But he could have been a bit more imaginative. You know, sometimes when someone's there to survive, you've got to you got to draw them out. It's almost worth you looking bad in round two, for example, to give the guy confidence. And then you can start to counter. You know, you know draw the lead or draw a mistake, make him get overconfident and then sort of go after him. And that's all ringcraft. And we don't seem to teach ringcraft a lot in this country. We, we teach people how to punch, how to not get punched, but we don't teach them how to create openings, exploit openings, look for openings. We don't teach any of that. That's why a lot of our boxes are, are pretty one-dimensional. And as long as we keep going around the same circles in the same gyms with the same people, we're going to get the same outcome. We're going to keep seeing British prospect after British prospect look good against people they're meant to look amazing against. And then when they come up against someone that knows what they're doing, they'll be found to be utterly clueless. And then we'll wonder where it all went wrong. It goes wrong in the beginning because we do not teach boxers in this country how to create opportunities. We don't teach them the, the underlying philosophy of boxing. And because of that, they can't make in-ring decisions themselves. And it's a real shame because if you look at Vidal Riley, he's got he's got a win over Chris Billum Smith. So he he operates at a certain level. But I, I wonder, has he been as dedicated in the intervening four or five years as Chris Billum Smith has? Because if you look at the physiques, like you know Chris is cutting down to get to cruiserweight. I don't know if Vidal Riley's really cutting down to get down there because physically they look completely different. And I know he's only four or five fights into his career, but we need to be seeing a, a dedicated attempt to make him strong at that weight. Because right now, I think Little Junior beats him, so Alois the Animal, as he likes to be known. I think he'd beat him. If they fought now, I think he'd beat him. And he's a teenager. He's a teenager with one fight and one loss on his record. And I think he'd beat Vidal Riley. Only because he's been so consistent. He hasn't left the gym. He, he's been active. And you can't make you can't make any substitutes for that, man. That activity is key. But I'm I'm going to follow his career, and I'm going to give Vidal Riley the benefit of the doubt. He, you know, what I mean, give him another six months to get his momentum up, and then hopefully we'll get some spectacular results against good benchmark opponents. In terms of the card, who else was there? The Azim brothers. Now. I've had my eye on these kids since they were really, really young. Like I say, shouts out to Pinewood Star, producing boxers who can really, really box again. And they never get their credit. And, and I don't understand why. Because I think if you look at everyone who's come out of Pinewood Star, man, they've, they've always been fantastic technicians. Maybe not had the pro success their junior success would warrant, but I put that down to the fact that they were never as well coached in the pros as they were in the amateurs. With the Azim brothers now working with Shane, that's different. And I'm intrigued to see if they become rounded boxers or they become professional extensions of their amateur selves. And there's a difference. And what I mean by that is, look at Amir Khan. Amir Khan is simply a professional version of Amir Khan the amateur, right? That's what he is. Stronger, fitter, probably a little bit faster at his peak, but essentially the same fighter. Now look at Kel. 
Kel, Kel had one way in the amateurs, but he's added wrinkles and he's added layers. But he probably had those before just because of, you know, you're in the Ingle gym with guys like Ryan Rhodes. And I touched on that in the previous episode. And that's what you want to get to. You want to get to a point where you're a more rounded boxer having turned pro. And you're setting traps and you understand that you can't bomb everyone out of there. And, you know, you want to catch the guy with his chin in the air and be able to exploit that. And that's what you want to work on. And so we need to, this is what we need to see with Shane. And I think the Azim brothers, Caroline Dubois, Ellie Scottney are going to be that, that test bed for him. You know, are we just going to get professional extensions of these amateur guys? Or are we going to get proper professional boxers with the skill set they need to compete at the top level? But having said that, good performances. They're fast. They've got all the punches in, in, in the repertoire. They've got, they've got everything you need to be successful. You, you don't need to teach them much else, but you've got to get them moving. Kind of like, look, how was Bomack able to turn Crawford into Crawford? There, there, there are those little tricks you've got to be teaching now. And you may not need them in the next fight, but you may need them five, ten years down the line. But this is where the investment comes. You know, what do you do on the inside? Do you know how to pin the guy's right hand? Do you know how to stick your thumb right on his bicep so that round after round it starts to hurt? Do you know how to jab to the breastbone so it hurts when you breathe? All these little things that guys in other countries seem to know and we don't know. You know, that thing of knowing where the ref is so you see if you can get away with a little punch to the hip or just a little swing to give a dead leg. All those little things that that individually don't look like a big deal, but over the course of 12 rounds add up. We don't teach. The Azim brothers are going to need that. Whether they fight a welter, junior welter, super well, they're going to need that. Because the talent's there. Like, I'll never question what Pinewood Star produced. Now it's on the pro guys to, to refine that and give us a masterpiece. If, if Shane can give us masterpieces in the Azim brothers, wow, there you go. I mean, you, you start to talk about him in that sort of Joe Gallagher talk. Yeah, I mean, he moves past the Adam Booth talk into the Joe Gallagher talk. So I'll be interested to see what their their career does overall. But, you know, I'm keeping a close eye on that for all the reasons I just mentioned. I imagine I've sort of flown through the main parts and now we've got to talk about Natasha Jonas, haven't we? And I I can't stop smiling at the idea that Natasha Jonas is a world champion. Um, and people say, why? Before it was just the sense of injustice. I thought she was unfairly treated against Terry Harper. I thought she won the fight. I don't, I don't even want to entertain a discussion that, oh, well, it was close. It could have gone either way. No, Natasha Jonas won the fight. And Natasha Jonas exposed that maybe Terry Harper's not who we thought she was. And then <laughs> we saw what happened with Alicia Baumgartner, right? Who I think Natasha Jonas would have given hell to, by the way. So anytime they want to make that fight, I'm here for that. Uh, against Katie Taylor, I thought she was competitive, but I just think Katie Taylor is really hard to look good against. And maybe Tasha would have needed three minutes of each round for that one, just because of the pace that Katie sets. And there's no, there's no shame in not beating Katie Taylor. We can all accept that. And that doesn't mean that because she hasn't won a world title, she's not as good as the other people who have belts. And Tasha Jonas is in that, that top 10 female boxers on the planet discussion based on what she could do in a ring comfortably. And I think we need to give her that respect. But it was when I met her after 
Dan Aziz versus Jose Burton. It was after that, and I got to speak to her. And you could just, you know when you hear the conviction in someone's voice about just the thing they want, the thing they get out of bed for? Because I, I, I still don't understand how you juggle being a mum, being a boxer, and all your commercial commitments on top of that. Yeah, I, I, you know, I have an unbelievable amount of respect. And so just speaking to her, I was like, I remember the last thing I said to her was, I really hope you win a world championship. Like, that will let me know that everything's right in the boxing world. And and so it was, you know, and that was probably the first time I'd met and spoken to Fraser Clark as well. Uh, we'll just do a little sidebar on him. Fought a guy who no one knew, blasted him out. I know the fans are going to complain, but it was a showcase. At least the guy didn't sustain, you know, life-changing damage. Fraser looked heavy. He will probably come down in weight. I'd like to see Fraser boxing around 17-3, maybe 17-2. And then... You know what I mean? Build from there. See where the body goes naturally from there. But just to come back to Natasha Jonas, I'm I'm so, so happy. Because if you look at the build that people were talking about, her opponent was this, that, and the third. What we knew for certain was Natasha Jonas was giving up weight. And she did. She weighed in, what, 149 pounds? So she was giving up weight. I don't think she had to, she didn't have to cut for this. I don't know if her opponent had to cut, but you know, her opponent's a natural light middle. And Natasha Jonas, when the fight started, my whole thing was, this is just about whether Natasha Jonas can keep moving enough to keep, uh, what was her name? Chris, someone, the Uruguayan lady, forgotten now. But to keep her opponent off, off balance and then find a home for the straight left. The straight left was always going to be the key punch because women's boxing is quite, it's in its nascent stages, right? It's still growing. So a lot of people aren't really comfortable dealing with the Southpaw Orthodox thing. Natasha Jonas is because she's elite level. So she just had to find those little pockets where she could go straight left, right hook. And that was always going to find a home. Because unless you've been to the places Natasha has, you don't see the ring the same way. Male or female, you do not see the ring the same way as Natasha does. But let's be honest, to drop her opponent twice, her bigger opponent to drop her twice heavily by the way it wasn't like a oh she was just off balance she got dropped heavily you know and she was fighting to stay up so credit to her for that but she got dropped heavily and you realize after the second knockdown you might be out of your depth here and i kind of felt for it because that must hurt to say listen i got beaten up by a lightweight not that i lost to a lightweight i got beaten up by a lightweight by a super featherweight in many cases you know, in simple terms, I got beaten up by a woman that walks around or can fight at 60 kilos, I should say. Sorry about that. And so, what do you say to that? That's going to be hard for her to cope with. But for Natasha Jonas, you're a world champion. Do you really want to be a light middleweight champion? Probably not. But you're going to exercise the WBO rules. When you're a champion in one weight class, you can go to another weight class and be mandatory. I hope that's the game they're playing here, was just to get the mandatory shot. Because what's the point in being in a weight class that's too big for you? But now you can literally vacate and say, right, I'm going to go for the WBO light welter. And maybe Katie Taylor, whoever beats Katie Taylor, now has to fight Natasha Jonas. But she's been a world champion. She might defend it once 
and then invoked the WBO privilege. It was interesting that they brought Hannah Rankin in for for comms, and actually Hannah wasn't well, Hannah wasn't bad. I don't think it's something she does regularly, but for like a, a rookie, she did okay. You know, she managed to to hit all the talking points. She managed to push the story forward. If I'm being honest, I don't want to see that fight. I don't think they're at comparable levels. And the only reason you would have that fight is could Natasha Jonas cope with the size difference? And as we saw on Saturday night, it wouldn't be hard. And that's no disrespect to Hannah Rankin, but you have to remember when Natasha Jonas was at the level Hannah Rankin is now technically, Hannah Rankin was playing her, was playing the bassoon. Is it the bassoon? Yeah. She was a musician. So Hannah Rankin has probably gone from being, a, being at school, being a student, going to university, learning her playing instrument, moving down to London, working in London, deciding to do boxing to keep fit, then deciding she might be okay at this boxing, working her way up the, the lower reaches of boxing into fighting Clarissa Shields and so forth, in which she was outclassed as she was with Savannah Marshall. And in all that time, Natasha Jonas has done nothing but box at an elite level. So you're not comparing like with like. And, and I don't want to fall into the trap of us conning the public into believing it's a battle of equals because that doesn't do Natasha Jonas any respect. So hopefully, and I know Joe Gallagher puts his fighters first, he'll have that covered because you saw how much it meant to Joe. Um, I, I said it before, I prefer Sons of Anarchy Joe. Now we've kind of got quality street gang Joe. You know, he's with the side parting, it's slicked down. There's definitely a bit of Grecian 2000 in there or some Just For Men. So, shouts out to Joe, man. I like the fact that, you know, he's hitting the chameleon phase now where he's just changing his look depending on the fight. But, another world champion for Joe Gallagher. We've got to start talking about this guy being the best trainer since Brendan Ingle. Yes, what he does isn't spectacular and it's not flashy and guys aren't dropping their hands and so forth, but he keeps producing time after time. And we've got to start giving him his roses. Yes, he's abrasive and he's this and he's that, but that's Joe. You know I mean, like, I've had to learn to love and respect that because now I understand why you have to fight so hard for your guys. That's the difference between your guy ending up like Scott Quigg or your guy ending up like, what was the kid's name? Was it Ben Hall that fought Carson Jones? You see what I mean? That's why you want the right people around you because they protect you from harm. So I was happy for Joe. You could see how much it meant for Joe. All the little things Joe was doing, making sure Natasha had the sponsors in the right place. You know, he put the how out the way for the interview because it's like, no, no, they need to see your face. You got to look your best for that interview, Natasha, because, you know, this is history. And then he brought the hat back for the sponsorship opportunities. Ah, man. Those small details are a sign of a coach that cares. An experienced coach and a coach that cares. Yeah. And if you have to pay 10% to a trainer, at least get your money's worth. So now kudos to Natasha Jonas. Kudos to Joe Gallagher. I think the world's her oyster right now. If she doesn't fight again, I'd be happy. Um, I'd like to see her leading the sky coverage and there should be a two to three year horizon for Natasha Jonas to be that, that front woman for the sky coverage, because I think it would be a bit more involved because she can hold the other guys accountable and she can ask pointed questions because she understands how the game works and she understands what the fans need to see and hear. So let's talk about the main event. That's why you guys are here. 
when I think of, of the main event, I just go back to what Carl Froch said right in the beginning where he said, until I hear that bell ring for the first round, I don't believe this fight's going to happen. And just before they were due to be coming out, we get, we get told there's an issue with the gloves. And there was no clarity. If you remember, there was no clarity. We were just told there's an issue with the gloves. Andy Scott's trying to knock on the door. It all seemed a bit theatrical. The security guard's like, you can't come in. You know, almost as if he didn't realize, well, Sky with the broadcast, I think they have every right to go in. <laughs> I think Sky supersedes the security guard, but it was all good for dramatic effects, right? And so, as it turns out, Kel's wearing non-approved gloves. So, I don't know how that happens because all the gloves are meant to be checked by the board and approved, right? So if the contract said you could only wear Grant gloves, why were there fly sport gloves in there? That's the first question. Who put the fly sport gloves in there and who signed off on that? Secondly, I don't know why we still have fly sport gloves as approved professional gloves. They're not, they're not where they need to be. For me, they're good club gloves. Like if you're just there hitting the bag and you're sparring in your gym, they're okay. But the pro level, I, just, I imagine Kel chose them for that exact reason that the padding tends to disintegrate pretty quickly on fly sport gloves. I'm not going to say they make bad equipment because if you look at everything else, like the leather and stuff, high quality stuff, really good uh, stitchmanship, and they're hiring for, for a stitch if anyone is interested. But in terms of that padding, no. Now, do I do I think the grants are better made? Yes. Do I think the grants are a softer glove? Not necessarily. You've got to know how to punch through grants. I've got I've got a pair of grants here at home, and once you've punched them in a little bit, yeah, they're good gloves. It gives you the right balance between you know protecting the hands, but also letting you feel the punch. And you know, if you can feel the shot, the opponent can too. So we end up with this ridiculous scenario where Kell Brook is in the ring with Dom Ingle, and they're cutting the gloves off to then put the new ones on. And then they talk about, we need some time to hit the pads and warm up again. And you're like, oh my God, is this, is this really happening on the biggest stage of the year? Is this really happening in the biggest grudge match British boxing's got? We're really about to have a, a wrangle over gloves. And it did something really interesting. It cooled both fighters down. Now, I don't know if this had an effect on the result. I don't even want to speculate on that because the result was fair. But if you go back to the beginning of the fight, normally I like to see a fighter sweating. There should be a glisten. They don't be dripping, but there should be a glisten that says, right, my, my metabolism's firing, my reflexes are on, I'm good. Amir Khan and Cal Brook looked bone dry. No. And so, uh, you know, did that have an effect? I don't know. But whenever I see that, it's always a, it's a bit of a red flag to me. But the, the drama helped make the occasion as well. And, you know, you're going to remember that the whole, they'll call it glove gate, I'm sure. And so you, you'll have that. And, you know, you had Michael Buffer there. God, he looked old. Like he, he really, really looked old. So I don't know how many more years we've got of Michael Buffer. Let's enjoy him while we've got him. And so as you come to the fight, and I thought Khan would win, not 100%, maybe 52-48, maybe 58-42 actually, a bit more natural for me. I just thought if you're going to go all the way to Colorado with Bomac and all this, it's going to be a fight where you're just raiding in and out, like consistently, not setting your feet, 
not giving Kel a target to aim for. Just in and out, pick up your points, score, like you would have done in the early 2000s as an amateur. I thought that was what the plan was going to be and pick up the at least five of the first six rounds. And then whatever happens after that, happens after that. That, that was how I thought it would play out in my head. And I think I said in episode 82, Kel's best chance is just to maul and to bully Amir Khan. Don't, don't give him that space. And Kel clearly listened to episode 82 because that's what Kel did. Yes, I am going to take credit for that one. And so there are a couple of things Kel does that I really like. One, when he knows he's stronger than you, he'll do that, that falling in jab that he does. And he also does it with the one two where he just leans all his weight into it. So yeah, he just he either steps in with it or sometimes he just falls in with it and it becomes a far heavier punch or a far heavier combination if he brings the right hand into it as well. And you don't teach that. That's something you figure out yourself by doing stuff in the gym and then go, oh, this really works. Because I can remember that from my days in Sheffield. That's not, that's not a textbook manoeuvre, by the way. But what it also does is it gets you in close and normally you can get your forearm onto your opponent and shove him off come back with another right hand. You know, that's ring craft. That's something Khan doesn't have. And we saw immediately in that first round, Khan, Khan has never evolved his style. And the reason he's never evolved his style was his hand speed was so spectacular as a fight winner that as long as he had that, he was pretty hard to beat. You know, you had to beat him with either luck or exceptional timing. And maybe that's why the guys that made with him, Pacquiao, didn't want to face him. And so that first round, that's, that was a tension. What's going to happen when these two go? And I said it immediately. I was like, why is Khan so hesitant? Old Amir Khan would have just gone gung-ho. And you saw... I think inside the first minute or so, you saw some of the flashes of speed and you're like, Kel's not seeing all of these punches. But Kel was smart. He just stayed there, hands up, cool. Drop down, roll under, pivot when I need to. And then Kel hit him and Khan's legs went bandy and you're like, oh my word. And I genuinely thought this might be over in the first round. I was like, oh my God, this isn't the way it's supposed to end. We don't want it to end like this. And so credit to Khan for that. Credit to Amir for, for having enough in him, enough of a warrior spirit in him to keep going. But the problem was that was the story for the rest of the fight. Round after round, Khan was trying to raid. It seemed that he was aiming for the eyes. And I hope that wasn't a tactic because he, he, he must have known he'd need more than that. He didn't really go to the body like, like a prime Amir Khan used to. If you think about Amir Khan at his best, he hit you everywhere. Just remember the body shot he dropped Maidana with. Just remember how savage that body shot was. We didn't see any of that. We saw kind of Oliver Harrison, rest in peace, type Amir Khan, just headshot raiding, da 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 And Kel looked prepared for that. If we're being honest, Kel looked prepared for that. And meanwhile, Kel had all of his bag of tricks. His jab, which I think might be one of the best in world boxing at its best. Because it's a combination of timing and power. 
that people all seem to struggle with. Even Golovkin seemed to struggle with it until he got his sense of timing in. Spence struggled with the jab round after round. Crawford struggled a bit with that jab as well. But he also does something interesting with his jab. Like, I like it. I call it the flick one-two. And not enough boxers use that. Where you broadly have your hands together in your fight stance. And you flick your left hand out. You know, making sure, you know, it's sort of... How do you put it? Your palm's perpendicular to the floor, right? So you don't, you don't twist over. You just flick it out so that the knuckles land in a straight line vertically. But what you do is the right hand comes immediately after that. Immediately after that. And it's almost impossible to defend that. You're not going to be able to, to block and twist quick enough. And there'll always be a home for that straight through the guard. And Kells mastered that better than most other boxers. He, he was just able to land that routinely on Khan. And then once he did that and he had Khan scrambled, he was able to come around the sides and... Khan didn't seem to have an answer other than covering up. And it was, listen, covering up was effective because that's kind of what kept him in the fight. Go, if you go back and watch it, a lot of Kel's best shots were just, they were catching enough of the glove to take the, the sting out. And, but there was nothing like, he, you know, Khan wasn't able to counter from that position. It was literally cover up, run around till you can get some space and try again. And Kel just didn't let him have that space. And round after round, Khan was taking hard shots and he wasn't able to do much back to Kel, which was a worry. But you watch that fight in your head, you go, Khan's old. You suddenly realize that this guy's been in this public eye since he was 17. Rarely allowed to make a mistake, rarely allowed to have a Carson Jones type moment, rarely allowed to develop in the shadows. Unlike Kel. Kel... Up until about, what, 2012, 2013, Kel was the hardcore's favorite, but he wasn't, you know, he didn't have the, the glare of publicity on him. He just didn't. That's why we never talk about the first stabbing, only the second one. Yeah. So you look at that going, Khan's old. That's all I, I kept thinking, Khan's old. And by that sixth round, in fact, I would have understood if they said, Amir, don't go out. Like, well, what are you trying to prove? You can't win this fight. Because he couldn't at that point. And he went out and he took, he, he, he was taking shots, but he wasn't, and I can only offer my take on it. When you've got a guy who seems to be overmatched in the ring, you've got two options. You pull him out early, right? Or you go, right, what is a dignified point at which either we throw the towel in or the ref stops the fight? Now, if you're a referee, your job is to protect the safety of the fighter in the ring for that fight. It's not about what happened yesterday, what happens tomorrow in that fight. You have to look and go, is this man in a position to defend himself? The answer, the answer at the point where the referee stopped the fight was yes, because Amir Khan had blocked punches. You know, you, in boxing, you don't block every punch. You're not meant to. But the ref had made his mind up before Kel threw that right uppercut right at the end that Amir wasn't in that position. Had he let it play out another 10 seconds, would Khan have been able to get out past that sort of situation into some space, clear his head? No idea. Would I have stopped the fight at that point? No. Do I think there could have been a better point to stop the fight? Yeah, there were earlier rounds where Khan looked like he was taking more punishment. Maybe you stop the fight at the point where at least you go, right, 
in about 30 seconds, his hands are going to drop and this is going to be the end of it. I don't think we were at that point. But I'm only basing that on my own individual experiences of being in those positions, right? The ref may have seen something different. So while I am frustrated with when it was stopped, I, so it was more of a question of when the fight was going to be stopped, not if. So anyone listening to this, don't at me. Don't say anything about when the stoppage happened. I, I'm not that bothered. I'll, I'll stand by this. You know, Khan wasn't knocked bandy. And people say, but look how his face was marked up. You got to know the difference between bruises and abrasions. Khan, Khan looked marked up. But most people who spar, if you spar with no head guard, that leather's going to mark up your skin. It does with me. Like my skin marks up badly because I'm quite light. You know, so my skin marks up. It doesn't mean I was hurt. It just means that at various points, the gloves made contact and moved to the side or moved up or moved down. And so that's caused an abrasion, right? Yeah, someone will say, yeah, but that means the punch landed. Yes, but we don't know to what degree it landed. So I don't read too much into people say, ah, he was taking hellacious shots unanswered. Not really. He was taking a lot of shots, but it's hard to tell whether there were punches he couldn't cope with. That's why I say to people, you normally want a stoppage to be clear cut. And I think what I saw on social media was people were taking the sympathy angle, which is fine. We're in the climate of CTE now. And so how many shots do you want to take? I get it. But those guys have to wake up tomorrow or whatever day, Wednesday, they wake up every day, in fact. And they've got to be able to say, that's how I went out in that fight. That's how I went out. Now, the good thing is, I don't believe there's a loser in all of this, if I'm being brutally honest. If you look at it from Amir Khan's perspective, Amir Khan, 17-year-old Olympic silver medalist, made more money than he ever thought he would, achieved more than anyone thought he would, proved the doubters wrong, proved the naysayers wrong, proved so many people wrong with his career. How a man that vulnerable to heavy shots made a career the way he did is a miracle. But we, I mean, we, we were witness to it and you can never question his bravery. I don't believe Khan ever ducked a fight. And so when you look at Amir Khan, he could have retired before the Kelbrook fight and his career would have been good. I don't think that's true for Kel. I think if Kel had retired before taking this fight, I think that would have always eaten away at him. I don't think it eats away at Khan the way it would have eaten away at Kel. So I think at least when when the old war horses get together, you never know, five years from now, we may see Khan and Brooke on a Sky Sports show together as pundits. At least they'll be able to say something. Like Khan can say, you never won an Olympic medal or you know, you never, you never did this. You weren't a two-time champion or unified champion. And Kel can just say, mate, I beat you. They've got, you know... <laughs> At least it's not a one-way conversation anymore. And those things are important to guys after they retire. I promise you, you walk into a room differently when you've beaten someone. In the same way that you walk into a room differently when you've achieved at a high level. So I'm glad that those guys now have the, the esteem and the respect and the love of the public they deserve. I, I really am happy for them because that would have been a hard way for anyone to go out. But in the whole aftermath of things, um, what are the things we can say about this fight? Like the fight itself. One, 
let's have some respect for Kel Brook and his skill set because he looks pretty complete in there. He really looked complete. He, he could have it looked like he could have done everything. It's it's like they they went through the archives and they brought out everything good about Kel Brook for that fight. Everything he's ever done well came out in that fight, and he was able to maximize his potential. So I, I tip my hat off to him. I tip my hat off to Khan for being brave enough to to take that for as long as he did. You know, I thought the post-fight press interviews or the press conference was immense. The interviews in ring were good. It was nice to see that there's a, a, a rapprochement of sorts. So, you know, at least there's dialogue between the two now that's based on respect. Whether those two will ever become friends, I don't know. But as long as they can be in the same room as each other and be civil, I think that's a win for boxing. And that's a, another testament to how amazing a sport this is. Uh, you know, I keep saying, it. if you're a young boxer and you want to know how to do this thing called boxing, Kel Brook's a good starting point in this country, I think. And it's just a tragedy that we don't produce more guys like Kel in this country because we've got the talent. Uh, Post-fight press conference thought Kel Brook was magnanimous. It was the right way. He he was the right balance of I told you so. And, you know, respect to Amir Khan. I thought Khan was fantastic as well. I thought he... He just put he put Kel over in a way that very few people do, which kept money in Kel Brook. And that's an important thing. They kept money in Kel Brook. And, you know, if Khan retires at this point, he has nothing to prove. I do believe Amir Khan deserves a knighthood because people are right. British boxing wouldn't be what it is now without Amir Khan. You know, when we talk about amateur boxing, Audley was the spark. Khan was a validation of a change in approach. And then guys like James DeGale were the confirmation that this is the right way to proceed. In terms of Khan as a pro, that desire to go after the best in America, he seems to be the only one with that desire. And I wish more people had done that. Yep. And he made British boxing cool. I, I, I have no idea how many British Muslims now box because of Amir Khan. But there's definitely a before and after in terms of numbers. If you can't give a man a knighthood based on that, I don't know what you have to do for this country to, to receive a knighthood because it seems that you just need to donate a quarter of a million to the Tory party and suddenly you're a lord. So as for Kel, what do you do if you're Kel? What do you do if you're Kel? Like this is, the expression horns of a dilemma is perfect at this moment. You see, Every great champion as they get older can always find that one performance. And you don't know where it comes from. Is it fear? Is it a sense of injustice? They find that one performance that is so different from their last five performances and probably so different from their next five performances that you realize it was just that one moment where the stars aligned for them and they could just rediscover the old magic for one night. And that may have been Kel. We won't know until the next fight. But I'll give you an example. Roberto Duran goes into a fight. Massive underdog against Iron Barkley. This has got to be like 89, right? Not expected to win. Barkley, bigger, stronger, tougher. Duran does them just with ring craft and savagery. Right? Hell of a performance. Like, you know, 
Maybe one of Duran's greatest ever considering the context. Next fight, fights Sugar Ray Leonard at middleweight, gets outclassed. Yeah, gets outclassed. That wasn't even close. Right? Sugar Ray Leonard finds that magical performance. It's like the Sugar Ray of old, more or less. Next fight for Sugar Ray Leonard, terrible Terry Norris. What happens to him? Gets completely outclassed. I'll give those two examples just to remind you that even the great guys can find that one performance and then afterwards, it's almost as if there's the same motivation isn't there. And so I think Kel has to understand that his performance on Saturday night was one of context. It was the opponent, the pressure, the legacy, the fact that he's close to retirement. And if it's, if it's not now, it's never. He won't have the stars aligned for him that way again. Because if you look at the options that are being talked about now, Connor Ben, no thank you. Chris Eubank Jr., yes, but, oh God, imagine that went wrong for Kel. Then that would be quite hurtful and it would sort of diminish what we saw on Saturday night. And you don't want that to happen. So I think Kel's got to think carefully about what's next and what he's capable of getting motivated for. And I think Carl and Johnny were right. Sometimes, you know, you may not find that hunger again. Eubank Senior did a good uh, Eubank Junior, sorry, did a hell of a job of promoting a likely fight between them. You know, I'm I'm not against it, but I just don't think it would be good for Kel. So what do you do if you're Kel? You've made enough money, you're comfortable, you live in Sheffield, so it's not that expensive. Your house is paid off comfortably. Just enjoy the career. Like there's no better way to end it. The same way Carl did. Carl left on top. That's why the public still love him. He wasn't prepared to give up his name after that George Groves win. And I hope Kel Brook takes the same approach. Now we've also got to praise the, the support. Start again. We'll praise the support cast. I thought Ben Shalom was really good. He, he spoke enough that we know he exists. But he didn't make it all about Ben Shalom and Boxer. I love that. And I love the fact that both fighters gave Ben Shalom credit because you know what I have been led to believe as well is it was a tough negotiation, but he he managed it in the same way you would any business transaction, where it was okay, we know Kel will take the fight. We don't know the parameters by which Kel will take the fight, but let's go to Amir first and say, Amir, what are the conditions you would need to take this fight with Kel Brook? And once those were outlined, you could play those back to Kel. And once Kel said, uh, uh, you iron out some of the bumpier issues and then wham, now you're talking purses. But money wasn't the issue at that point. You know? The platform was agreed upon. It had to be Sky. And there you go. The rest is history. But that was Ben because other promoters would have made it about them and how they made the fight happen. And I think this is a new model that I enjoy of a promoter speaking when they need to in the process of promoting the fight and then falling back and letting the real protagonist talk. So credit to Ben Shalom for doing that. If this is where we're going to be going forward, fantastic. Adam Smith, I thought was electric. Back to the Adam of old, I thought Carl was really good. I enjoyed having Dave Caldwell on comms as well. I thought it gave that added 
Ingle dimension to it. And my favourite quote about Kel was, I think someone called him uh, Kel's former trainer, and Dave Caller corrected him and said, no, friend. Friend. He said, no, Kel's an Ingle creation. I may have helped out for a little while, but he's Ingle born and bred. And I love that. Like, I've got a newfound respect for Dave now. You know, Johnny equally so. I thought everyone played their part in this. There's There, there are no weak links at all. So let's let's sign off today by ignoring the, the fights that happened in the arena, the Phil Foden situation, all that negativity. Ignore all of that because those people were there for themselves. They weren't there for boxing and they weren't there for the occasion. We had a hell of a night, Saturday night. That made me proud to be involved in the sport. That made me proud to be a boxing fan. One of my most enjoyable nights, one of my most enjoyable weekends in a long time, just all things considered, the boxing and everything else. So I give thanks for that. And I just say, guys, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you are smiling as much as I am after that. And long may this continue. Let's start getting these fights made. Now that we've moved the obstacle out the way and he's out there on, on an app doing what he does, Let's get these fights made. Let's get some fan-friendly fights made. But I don't want to talk about too much of this because I want you to focus on Saturday night. Uh, I'm tempted to do the the Monday Mass. So when the Monday Mass comes out, I might touch on some of these wider issues as well. But on that note, I'll sign off and say, take care, guys. And thank you for listening this far. I didn't think it would be this long. But, you know, there was a lot, a lot committed to, to fight night on Saturday. So thank you. Um, yeah, honestly, my boxing career, I've done more than I ever expected. What well, I've done in boxing, I mean, at the age of 17, maybe I peaked too early in my career. In my, in my, in my career. You know, at 17, I was in the Olympics, I won the World Tower at 21, 22. So I did, I'm 35 now, I've been in the game a very long time. Oh man, man. I want to spend time with my kids, my family, you know. Uh, yeah, well, great. I never enjoy myself. Honestly, look, the paycheck, we're making the paychecks, but I want to make sure that I enjoy that because I never, be I never it. have. Yeah. Be around to spend yeah, and I want to be, I want to be, I want to be there for my family, like with my kids. You know, I want, I want to take them to school and be that father. You know, even though me and Kel have never we really looked eye, eye to eye, but you know, I'm not by person. I'm a family man. It was just that, um, obviously, we, when there was words thrown back and forth. Nothing personal is it made the fight exciting. But uh, end of the day we're family men and I'm glad we end up putting a great performance on for you guys.